Our scripture this morning is from Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the gift, joy, and blessing of being able to gather this morning in fellowship and worship. May our time be honoring unto you and bring you glory. As Jeff brings the message this morning, let his words be your words and soften our hearts so that the truths of your holy and inspired word would convict and edify us and impact our hearts and lives. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Alan. Appreciate you. Well, we'll be right there in that very passage. We've been reading that every week leading up to now, and now we finally come to this passage, and we're going to explain why it is uh, that this is just such an important capstone. These verses are such an important capstone for what Paul has been saying over the last three chapters. Inevitably, when my kids were little, I have four kids, I have three boys and, and one girl, our youngest is a girl, and inevitably, when they were little and one of them would need correction or discipline, uh, we had one child, well, two children, but one in particular, um, and he knows who he is, <laughs> who, who would immediately, his immediate response or reaction to us disciplining one of his siblings would be, ha ha, <laughs> right? You got one of those or have you been one of those growing up? And so Carrie and I would immediately turn and say, sit down, be quiet, apologize. Listen, this could very easily be you within the next five minutes, <laughs> right? You could be here. And that is what Paul is doing. Paul has had a similar parenting moment here with the Gentiles in the Roman church. Paul's whole line of thought is that the true spiritual children of Israel are made up of believing Gentiles and a remnant from the ethnic, national people of God, the Jews. And right now, the Jews are in a state of discipline. And then he turns to the Gentiles and says, but hey, don't say ha-ha, don't gloat, don't become conceited, don't get too big for your britches, because this could very easily be, and was, you sitting here under the discipline of the Lord. And so now we come to this question that we kind of opened the, these chapters with, which is, what do we make of the fact that God is sovereign in election and men are responsible? Men are held liable for their decisions, either to believe in Christ or reject Christ. Because Paul has taught us both of these things. God is sovereign in election of his choosing of people, and yet people are responsible for their choices. People are responsible for how they respond to the gospel. So Paul will close this topic now by revealing two more things, a couple more things about this subject. And once he does that, He's going to throw his hands up and he's going to appeal to the unsearchable, untraceable knowledge of God on this matter. Number one, if you're following along with the bulletin, God's gracious gift of election is irrevocable. It's irrevocable. It's, irre it's ir um, 
replaceable. And God does not repent for choosing them. Look at verse 28. This is regarding the gospel. They are enemies for your advantage, but regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs. Since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable. They're inalienable and irreversible. In Paul's day, the Jews had become enemies of the gospel. Actually, it started in Jesus' day. Jesus went around to the hillsides in Galilee, and he went around preaching the good news to anyone who would listen. In every village, Bethsaida, Capernaum, uh, Chorazin, right? He went around to all these northern villages, and he would preach the good news of the kingdom of God, forgiveness in the kingdom of God. And the religious Jews have an immediate response to him. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, they all rejected him. They all opposed him. So starting all the way back with Jesus, who became this light to those living in Gentile Galilee, and they opposed him. And then they opposed the work of the apostles. A couple of years ago, we did a series through the the book of Acts. If you haven't listened through that, I encourage you to do that. And one of the things that we kept coming up against was this idea that the apostles, and Paul in particular, would go into a synagogue, and when they would preach the gospel in the synagogue, they would be be thrown out of the synagogue, and sometimes Paul would be beaten, and once, at least once, he was beaten and left for dead. In the first century, the primary people who persecuted the gospel were not the Romans. They were the Jews. And so when Paul says this, right now, ethnic Israel, national Israel, they're enemies of the gospel, That's what he means. They have set themselves against their own Messiah. They have set themselves against his good news of salvation in the cross. Their rejection of the gospel was to the Gentiles' advantage, however. As God had turned the offer to a people who were not a people, that's chapter 9, the same Holy Spirit promised to them The same Holy Spirit in the Old Testament that God said he would pour out on the people so that he would dwell in their midst was poured out on Pentecost and then in Acts chapter 10 was poured out on the Gentile world. And at the time, no one could believe this, not even Peter. Peter's response to God pouring the Holy Spirit out on Cornelius' home, he was a Gentile Roman, was disbelief. Peter's basic response was, if I had not seen it, I would not believe it. And yet here the Holy Spirit is being now offered to the Gentiles purely by faith. And yet God still loves the Jews, national, ethnic Israel, because of his gifts and his calling. And Paul says his gifts, that is to say, them being gifted as the original people of God, the original family of God on earth, that's irreversible. God isn't going to set that in reverse. And his calling to bless the nations of the earth with the Messiah, the Savior, and then their temporary impartial hardening of heart until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, that also is irrevocable. You can't throw that in reverse. Number two, God's election included his mercy through our disobedience. This is probably one of the biggest mysteries in the entire passage. From chapters 9 to chapters 11, this is just the way God did it. Verses 30 and 32, he says, As you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience, so they too now have disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so that they also may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that he may have mercy on all. 
So it's a bit of a of an entangled sentence. Let me just kind of pull it apart. Essentially what he's saying is this. In the past, God showed them mercy and now they're in a state of discipline. In the past, he showed you wrath and sternness and now he's shown his kindness to you. Now in the future, he's going to show his kindness to a remnant among national Israel. And so that seems to be what he's saying here. But Make no mistake about it, God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. This just is the way God wanted to do it, to imprison us all in sin, in disobedience, so that when he shows us mercy, we know it's just mercy. It's just grace. There is nothing whatsoever that you or I could have possibly done to earn God's favor or to be good enough or smart enough or beautiful enough for him. Not at all. Number three, so how much can we know about this subject? So then how much are we privy to? Number three, God's revelation of his election is sufficient for our worship. I would argue that the whole purpose of Paul bringing up this doctrine of God's election is to drive us and lead us to this one thought. God's purpose for us is to bring him glory. God's own glory has been his purpose all along. And so God has revealed certain mysteries to us. There are certain mysteries that he has revealed, right? So the first one is the mystery of a cruciform gospel. The mystery of a cruciform gospel. What do we mean by this? Look at that, look at that cross. What's its shape? That's, that's, that's the emblem of suffering and shame in the first century. That's Rome's symbol of erasing you from existence and erasing you from anyone's memory. And now that symbol has become the shape of salvation. And in the first century, nobody thought, it it never occurred to anyone, neither a Greco-Roman nor a Jew, to have a gospel shaped like the cross. The cross is a symbol of your decimation. And now it becomes the universal symbol of forgiveness and mercy and grace and salvation from God's wrath, his judgment. And so when we talk about this cruciform gospel, what we mean is a gospel that is formed in the image of suffering. First Corinthians 2. I want to read you this passage. I, I just want everyone to know this passage. This passage is so important. Verse 1, 7, 10 through 16. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, if you remember when I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, that is the gospel of the cross, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I didn't come with fancy philosophical arguments. Verse 2, he said, I decided to do nothing except the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 7, on the contrary, we speak God's Hidden wisdom and a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages of of our glory, for our glory. Verse 10, now God has revealed these things to us by the Holy Spirit, since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, but the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit, because it is foolishness to him. He is not able, take note of that, he is not able to understand it. What? The gospel. The gospel. He's not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. It is discerned spiritually. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything, and yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone or judged by anyone. 
Verse 16, for who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Understand what he is saying here. The gospel of our salvation in the shape of the cross of Christ is God's counterintuitive wisdom. No one in the ancient world would think that this was a wise way to save people. But this is God's wisdom. This is God's wisdom and this is the truth. And it's a secret. God hid it. Why would he hide it? Why would God do that? Because he, he says here in verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8, because if the rulers and the powers of this world, if they had known that that was the plan, they would have tried to stop it. And so it was cryptic. It was a cipher. It needed decoding. And now the cross is the cipher key. The, Christ, the cross shows us how God was going to do things all along. And so God's counterintuitive wisdom in the cross in this mystery, it is now revealed in two ways, he says. God's revealed it in two ways, through the apostolic preaching of the faithful. That is to say, a guy like me preaching God's word in the apostles' teaching in the word. Through the public proclamation and exposition of the word of the gospel, and two, the Holy Spirit who enlightens the heart, who enlightens the mind, who gives us understanding apart from apart from which he says we would not be able to understand the gospel. And so the idea that the Holy Spirit reveals the truth of God's gospel, which is in the shape of the cross, would be a nonsense message to anyone who originally heard it. That's why we need the enlightenment, the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Next is the mystery of Gentile inclusion. Well, no one predicted this. <laughs> no one was looking for a cross-shaped gospel, and absolutely no one thought, no Jews thought, that the Gentiles would be included in the family by faith. Romans 16, 25 and 26. He says, now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, and the proclamation about Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept silent for long ages, but now revealed... And made known through the prophetic scriptures according to the command of the eternal God to advance the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. Very few people saw this coming. Listen, if you were a Jew and you were sitting in synagogue, the passages that I have up on the screen Isaiah, from Isaiah, Zechariah, these passages, you would have very infrequently come upon them in your public readings. They were few and far between. And so there it is hidden in plain sight, isn't it? It's right there. Now, you can imagine Jesus sitting in synagogue, hearing these passages, and the Holy Spirit just turning on his imagination. Like God, the Father, just speaking to the Son, reminding him, this, this is the process. This is the gospel. We're going to include the Gentile people. But no one expected this. This was a mystery. God hid it. He tucked it back there, hidden in plain sight, and now suddenly when Jesus comes on the scene and he dies and the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church, suddenly this just becomes the new reality. The gospel is going forth into the Gentile world. Praise God, what a mystery it's solved. Next is the mystery of the Jews' future reconciliation. Their future reconciliation. Back to chapter 11, verse 25 he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, we talked about this 
last week. And if you missed that message, you can go back and listen to it. Essentially, what our points were, were very simple, is that the hardening of heart that has come upon national and ethnic Israel is partial, meaning that God has a remnant within the nation who will believe, like Paul, right? Like the apostles, like some of the Christians there in Rome. So God has a remnant, so it's partial, but it's also temporary. Because what he says is, is that this uh, God is going to bring them back into the faith, back into the fold, when the time of the Gentiles is up. And so God has revealed these things to us. This is part of the mystery. If you want to read more about the mystery, you can read 1 Corinthians 15. Just write that down. Paul has a lot to say about this mystery of the resurrection and how that's going to go as well. But God hasn't revealed everything about this subject to, subject to us. Paul now leads us in a hymn of praise, what, what we refer to as the ode to God's wisdom and knowledge because he wants to throw up his hands, as we said before, and say, listen, I don't understand everything about this. I know that God is sovereign in election. I know that mankind is responsible for the choices they make to either believe or not believe, And so God has limited our knowledge of what we can know about this subject. God has limited our knowledge regarding his foreknowledge and predestination. So he started the whole conversation out in Romans 8, 28, and 29. That's where the conversation began. Talking about those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified in resurrection. And so now God has limited us regarding our speculation about this subject. How do we know this? Look at verse 33 again. He says, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable. Just look at the words he's using here. How untraceable, how indiscernible. And it is right here where our temptation is to bring a philosophical theory about how this works. How is it that God is sovereign in election And men make choices, and they're held liable for those choices. And we want to plug in right between those two an explanation of how they work. And we're tempted to do this. And that's, look at the text. That's the very thing Paul does not do. He won't do it. (laughs) Instead, he, he appeals to God's knowledge, the depths and the unsearchable, the untraceable, the indiscernible ways of God on this matter. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Remember, 1 Corinthians 2 says, we do know the mind of the Lord. <laughs> it says, the Holy Spirit has revealed the mind of the Lord to us. So the Spirit has revealed the mind of the Lord to us and whatever he's revealed, that's what we've got. That's what we've got. And so God revealed the mysteries of the gospel to us and Paul says right here that there are aspects of this doctrine that are not revealed, that are not discernible, that are not amenable to our philosophical exploration. And so we live with this truth. We hold these things together in tension, don't we? We also learn from the text that everything pertaining to salvation is a pure act of grace. Now, this is another thing, actually, that we don't, we don't understand. I mean, do you understand why the Lord saved you? I don't know why he saved you. I don't know why he saved me, is what I meant to say. I don't know why God has saved anyone. And as we said a few, a, a few weeks ago, listen, God is not obligated to save anyone. Saving one person is a pure act of grace, isn't it? 
And so right here, Paul says this. He says, who has given to God such that now God owes them something? Does God owe us salvation because we were good? Does God owe us salvation because he looked down the corridor of history and saw that we would have faith? No, that, that isn't the reason why God saves us. He saves us because it's just his pleasure to do so. He saves us out of his own reasons, and frankly, I cannot fathom the reasons. I can't search them. They're indiscernible. And so everything pertaining to salvation is an act of pure grace. If you remember a few weeks ago, just to reiterate, the reason we say this is because of the metaphors that the New Testament uses to describe us and our sins. Think about it for a second. The Bible tells us we're spiritually dead. Remember the story of Lazarus. Jesus rolls up on his tomb. They roll the stone. The disciples roll the stone out of the way. And Jesus doesn't stand there and just like wait for him to raise himself from the dead. He calls him out of the grave. You and I cannot raise ourselves from the dead. We're spiritually dead. We're really, really dead in our trespasses, <laughs> right? And we're really blind. The Bible tells us that we're blind in our sins. Romans chapter one, we started this book out. Paul said that we as idolaters, as unbelievers, have become darkened in our minds such that we are given over to corrupt things to do what ought not to be done. We can't see the truth. And this is why we need the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter one, we need the Holy Spirit to enlighten our eyes to the truth. And the Bible tells us that we're enslaved, we're imprisoned to sin. Men and women, all of us, we come into the world enslaved to sin. And if the Son of God has set you free, then you are free indeed. And it is for freedom that he has set you free. Listen, and if he sets you free, that presupposes that you weren't free. You're not free till he sets you free. And so listen, the, the, the word pictures that the New Testament uses to describe us in our sin tell us that everything pertaining to salvation, 100% of it is on God, not on us. It comes from him. It's a gift from the Lord. So Paul, in this profound, beautiful doxology, he reminds us of this doctrine of grace. Who has ever given to God that God is obligated to give them back salvation or anything else. And he tells us that God is the source, the means, and the goal of his plan of salvation. Probably the most important verse in the book, or at least this chapter for sure, verse 36, he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. And I have to say that this statement, this statement if it really characterized my life, if it really did. I know, I'm your pastor. I'm standing up here. You, you like to imagine that it does. But it doesn't always. But if it really did, I would not be such a narcissist. <laughs> Christian narcissism is a problem. I think it's just a problem in our culture, don't you? Like, generally speaking, we're, we become so self-focused. And, and then the, what the culture does is they hand us these ingenious devices. They're like, here you go, here, here's how, and now just spend all of your time focusing on you, right? And this is what we do. It's cultural, it's inward, like it's in our sinful nature. We're prone to do it. 
But, but that's the sentence that corrects that mentality. That sentence right there corrects that mentality because if, if that really characterized my life and your life, then I wouldn't be so narcissistic and so self-focused and actually so miserable because that's what, that's what it produces. What it produces in our life is a misery. We just, we just destroy ourselves. It's a self-destructive mentality. But what Paul says is this, is all of life, everything in life is supposed to be, it comes from him. He's the source, he's the means, and he's the goal. He's the end of this whole thing. To him be glory forever and ever. I want to show you how he says it in Ephesians chapter 1. It says, in him... We have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works everything out in agreement with the purpose of his will. Pretty clear statement. So that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. Note that phrase, praise to his glory. And him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is now the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. So where has all this been leading? All of this has been leading to this doxology right here. There's some things we can know, there's some things we can't know. And when it comes to the stuff we can't know, we throw up our hands with Paul and we say, to the praise of his glory. We exist and we live in him, we live and move and have our being to the praise of his glory. Let me ask you, does that characterize your life? Is your life being lived to the praise of his glory, to his glorious praise? And God is most glorified when we discover our purpose according to his will. This is what brings him glorious praise. This, I would argue, is the only path to contentment in life. Are you struggling this morning with contentment in your marriage? Are you struggling this this morning with contentment in your job or your relationships or with yourself? Get your eyes on the God because it is from him by him and to him, all things, all things. Now, this isn't some pie-in-the-sky sermonizing. This really is the cure for a miserable, self-focused life. It really is. So let's draw some application from our text today. For those who are uninterested in thinking about the mystery of salvation, well, I want to encourage you to think about it more. Take some time to study. Take some time to look up these passages and really marinate on them. Just let them be part of your meditation because what you'll begin to see with it is just how gracious and how good and how great our God really is. The passage also challenges us to check our theories at the door and to live content with the knowledge that God has revealed. That what he has revealed in the word is sufficient for us to bring him praise and glory. For us to fulfill our purpose which is our highest, highest need in life to worship in spirit and in truth. And lastly, how might changing the focus of your life to the God who is the source, the means, and the goal of our salvation, how might that change your outlook on life? How might that change your approach to life? How would it cure us of a self-obsessed and self-focused existence? How might it change how we do church? I want to say if this is the mantra, if this is the banner then it changes how we do church. I am uh, recovering charismatic. 
I say recovering, <laughs> not fully recovered. I love raucous, lively, emotional worship for exactly three minutes. <laughs> it's like, I love it. And I don't mind if I hear different languages in the service too. It doesn't bother me. But here's the thing. God has not called us to sing worship songs that are just all about us. We sing songs today that involve us, don't we? We sing things from our heart, things that we desire, things that we're praying for God to do for us, like the battle belongs to the Lord. I don't know about you, but I got some situations in my life right now that every single day, all day, <laughs> at various times of the day, I go to God and I, and I pray that prayer, God, the battle is yours. I can't fight this. In my own strength, I need you. I need you to show me the light here, the way. And so there are things that we need from the Lord. And it's perfectly appropriate. If you don't believe that, hey, read the Psalms. The psalmist thought that. The psalmist cried out to the Lord. Now, in our Western sort of intellectual Christianity, that's just sort of cold rationality that we brought into the Christian faith, we tend to over-intellectualize our faith. I can be guilty of that for sure. But the psalmist knows how to cry out to the Lord. We've lost the art of crying out. We've lost the art of getting on our knees and emotionally just pouring out our souls to our God. That's perfectly appropriate. But all of our worship, every song we choose, every, every line and every song that we sing is about God. And don't you think Daniel does a wonderful job with that? Yeah. He does such a good job living in this tension between people like me who want a few more Jesus is my boyfriend songs. <laughs> and people like some of you who want some more hymns. Like he just lives in that tension. And he knows how, he knows how to live in it. But I can tell you his value and my value as well, more his than mine, <laughs> is that he can justify every sentence of everything we sing to the glorious praise of our Lord. And so this has direct application of how we sing, how we worship together. It also has direct application of how we preach. I got a lot of problems. And I would love to get up here and just talk about my problems. And I would love to commiserate with you with your problems because I know you've got problems too. But folks, we gotta preach what's in the word. We gotta preach what's in the text. And as we make application from the text, we go from the text to life, not the other way around. So this has a direct application to how we preach, how we teach the word. It's not just about me getting my yayas at church or my emotional experience. It is about when I walk in that door, did I come in here? Did I, with this congregation, glorify the Lord? Was everything that I did to the praise of his glory? And so there are lots of ways in which we can apply this, both personally and corporately as a church. We exist for the God who from him and through him and to him are all things. And it is to him be the glory forever. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for what, what a wonderful Wonderful word of exhortation this passage has been. And while some of it has been tough, 
Some of it's been hard for us to get our heads around. Lord, we thank you for being our teacher. We thank you for being present in our midst and enlightening our minds to understand your word. And God, we just pray today, we pray that this message would take on flesh, that it would become a reality in our lives. And Lord, as we think and meditate on the salvation, this great, gracious salvation that you have offered, Lord, we are just in awe. And we're inspired to share it with others, the people who don't know you, the people who have never heard this message. And Lord, we thank you that this passage just challenges us to check our theories at the door. Lord, we don't have to figure everything out. We don't have to plumb the depths of your great mind. We don't have to know why. We just need to know you and what you've revealed and help us to be content in that as we continue to study. And Lord, we thank you for changing our very life focus, that the center of our life is on you that the center of our passions, the center of our desires, the center of our focus, everything is on you for the praise of your glory. Lord, make us that kind of church, a church that discovers its joy and its purpose in you and you alone. In Jesus' name, we say amen. Amen.